Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, listeners. Dr. Sanjay Gupta here. Over the next few weeks, while we're working on the next season of Chasing Life, we're going to be sharing episodes from some of our favorite podcasts with you. First up is The Pulse from WHYY. In this episode, host Mike and Scott dives into the changing conversation about race and ethnicity in medicine. You're going to hear about why it's harder for Black Americans to get kidney transplants, why Asian is too broad of a category when it comes to public health, and how we could collect better, more meaningful data. These are issues that impact the health of everyday Americans and most likely people you know and love. I hope you'll give it a listen and that you find the episode as eye-opening as we did. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Every time you go to the doctor's office, you have to fill out forms with background information. Your name, your age, your family history, and your race and ethnicity. You have to check a box and pick a category. I check the box for Latino or Hispanic. I'm black. So I always check white, non-Hispanic to fill in those medical forms. I used to just put other, or prefer not to say, but more often they have... Middle East, North African now. Uh, throw that in there. Native American. If there's a box for two or more races, I will always check that one. Or sometimes I'll check both black and Caucasian. I check Asian and white. I'm Asian. Asian is a huge category. It includes people from, you know, India, Nepal, China, Korea, Indonesia. There's no real nuance when you're checking those boxes. What annoys me the most is when there's an electronic form and it only allows you to check one and it doesn't give you two or more races as an option, then I feel like I can't be truly represented. The categories seem pretty arbitrary. And when you make these sort of arbitrary categories, you may find differences in genetics between those groups, but you find more genetic difference within the same groups. And what is this information really being used for? How is it valuable? There are differences in biology amongst people. Race is too broad a category. That's Otis Brawley. He is an oncologist and researcher at Johns Hopkins University. To divide the American people into five racial groups is like trying to slice soup. It just doesn't work. (laughs) There's a long and painful history of race being misused in medicine and research to deny care, to study or find differences between groups of humans, or to create a framework of supremacy. Race does not define people's biology. I've had to spend a lot of time doing studies to show equal treatment yields equal outcome 
in equal settings. So why do we still ask about race? Where and when does it matter? How should this information be used? On today's episode, the changing conversation about race and ethnicity in medicine. First up, biological and genetic differences between humans are small. We are much more alike than we're different. We all have DNA in every cell of our bodies. 99.9% of every human's DNA is the same. Mine is the same as yours. Yours is the same as the engineers. His is the same as my FedEx woman who comes. Because we're human. There is wide agreement that race is a social construct, not a biological category. But still, there are cases where race is taken into account when important treatment decisions are being made. Sojourner Ahebe looked into one example, kidney care. For years, Nicole Jefferson was battling a series of health problems as she juggled a stressful job in the tech industry while raising her daughter. Then in 2003, she wasn't feeling well and went to a hospital with what she thought was a really bad flu. So when I went to the emergency room that night, thinking I had the flu, I was told, you have to start dialysis immediately because your kidneys are, have shut down. I was like, wait, what? What are we talking about? Are we serious? Nicole did dialysis for a number of years before she was able to get a kidney transplant in 2008. And she did well for years after that. But transplanted kidneys have an expiration date of sorts. They usually last for about 10 years. So close to a decade later, Nicole started feeling weird again, in a way that felt familiar, like her transplanted kidney was shutting down. You know, I begged my doctor to do a biopsy, and he kept telling me no because it wasn't warranted. And I said, well, I'll pay cash out of pocket. I just need, I have a feeling. Her doctor finally gave in. And when the biopsy results came back, it showed that 90% of her transplanted kidney was scarred and not functioning right. Once again, Nicole had to get on wait lists for a kidney transplant at regional hospitals. She remembers trying to get on a transplant list at a top hospital in Minnesota. And they said, we can't, we can't put you on the list because your kidney function is not down far enough. Doctors can estimate kidney function using these complicated equations that take into account things like your weight and your sex. But that day, Nicole learned the equation was different for her because she's Black. Now, if you take take the African-American part away and just say this is the kidney function, we would get treatment a lot sooner. So here's how this works. Healthy kidneys filter about a half cup of blood every minute, removing waste and extra water, which is sent out of the body via urine. When that filtration function isn't working, over time, there are some telltale symptoms. Swollen feet, nausea, cramps, back pain. But to get a real sense of the exact kidney function and that rate of filtration, nephrologists have to check in on the glomeruli, a network of small blood vessels, basically the filter part of the kidney. How much waste are they processing? How well are they working? This is called the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. 
And to actually measure GFR is very difficult because you have to uh, collect a series of blood measurements as well as urine measurements. That's nephrologist Amaka Inanya from the University of Pennsylvania. Amaka says though GFR is considered the gold standard measurement for kidney function, it's very time consuming to collect. It could take an overnight hospital admission to measure. So doctors were able to use some shortcuts. For years, nephrologists examined the amount of one specific waste product in the blood, serum creatinine, to assess kidney function. While it may be a blunt tool, it gives you a sense of what's happening. And this is very practical because creatinine is easy to measure, and it's also done very frequently in healthy people just to monitor their health. And in the eyes of doctors, creatinine really is the kidney function. That's Andrew Levy, a nephrologist and researcher whose work changed how kidney function is measured. In 1999, he was leading a research project called the Modified Diet and Renal Disease Study, or MDRD. So the MDRD study was a study where we looked at people with kidney disease to try and see if low-protein diets or lower blood pressure goal might slow the worsening of the kidney disease. The study had about 1,600 participants and collected their gold standard kidney function, think constant urine and blood collection, as well as their creatinine measurements. And in doing that, a clearer picture emerged. And we realized that we had thousands of observations where we could relate the observed serum creatinine to the measured GFR, and that that could help doctors in practice because they're used to just dealing with creatinine alone. This was a huge moment for kidney medicine. For the first time ever, researchers were able to compare gold standard measurements of the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, to the amount of creatinine in a patient's blood. So they were able to see how well this marker actually predicted kidney function. And the other things that we found that made the biggest difference in the level of creatinine for the same GFR were the age, the sex, and the race of the patient. Creatinine is essentially a breakdown of muscle in the blood. And Andrew and his researchers found some important differences. If you're biologically female, on average, you're less muscular than your male counterparts. Older people tend to be more frail than young people. Eating a high-protein diet or bodybuilding, these could all impact that amount of creatinine in your blood, independent of your real kidney function. So they quickly realized if they wanted to create an equation that would best estimate the kidney's filtration rate, Creatinine alone wasn't going to cut it. Age, sex, and weight were important, but so was race. Here's nephrologist Amaka Inanya again. And they found that Black participants in that study compared to white participants at the same measured GFR or kidney function had higher levels of serum creatinine. So if a Black patient and a white patient in this study at the same age, weight, and sex had the same measured kidney function, the Black patient had higher levels of creatinine in their blood. Based on this study, Andrew Levy came up with a new way to calculate estimated kidney function. It was called the MDRD equation, the first of its kind to include race as a variable. The researchers introduced a multiplication factor for Black patients that increased their kidney function to make up for those higher levels of serum creatinine in their blood. 
The point was to get a more accurate picture of black patients' kidney function, but Amaka says this number can have serious life or death consequences because it can determine how soon a patient gets a new kidney. We're assigning black patients to have better kidney function. So there's a delay in terms of when they can actually get referred to be uh, evaluated for a kidney transplant. And there was pushback against this race adjustment right from the start. Experts, including Andrew himself, say this study had a lot of issues. And those main shortcomings were that it included only people with kidney disease, didn't include people without kidney disease. It did not include very many people with diabetes. It had a small proportion of blacks. Um, It didn't have very many people who were elderly. It didn't have healthy people. And Amaka says the study didn't really include people of other races. There weren't a high number, for instance, of Asian participants or Latinx and Hispanic participants. And so they kind of lumped all of those participants together with the white participants. So it really became a Black versus non-Black investigation. And critics of this study say one of its biggest weaknesses was that the researchers never identified why there was this observable difference in serum creatinine between the Black and white people studied. That's the million-dollar question to this day. What they said, what the assumption was, was that Black people had higher serum creatinine levels because they're more muscular than uh, other individuals, other racial groups. And they use very weak and flawed studies to support this assertion, right? Those notions go back to slavery, where slaves were seen as biologically inferior for multiple reasons. And these studies serve to reinforce both the biological inferiority of Black people, as well as them just just inherently not being as good as others. The criticism mounted. And in the early 2000s, Andrew Levy redid the study. It was a larger study with Asian and Hispanic participants, a much larger group of Black people, and a range of healthy people and those with chronic diseases were included. And in this new and improved study, at the same measured kidney function, Black participants on average still had higher levels of serum creatinine than non-Black participants. When those results were published some years later, these equations were adopted widely across health systems in the U.S. as one of the standard ways to estimate kidney function. And the number continues to be adjusted for race to this day. This calculation, this number, is what stood in Nicole Jefferson's way when she was trying to get listed for a kidney transplant at a hospital in Minnesota. They said, we can't put you on the list because your kidney function is not down far enough. So I said, well, that's why I provided you this biopsy so you can see that although my numbers look a certain way, you have this information. This is one of the places that's considered the top notch. And you're looking at a number and saying, because I'm Black, this is what you're going based on and I can't be listed. So. That was very frustrating. Nicole says had she been a different race, she would have been eligible to get on the transplant list at that hospital. Because they're looking at these numbers that are made up and just make no sense. Now, if you take that, take the African-American part away and just say this is the kidney function, we would get treatment a lot sooner. David Jones is a medical historian at Harvard University who studies this medical practice of what's called race correction. Yeah, so one thing that has happened in medicine, again, this is medicine largely in the American context, is because we have these 
old deep intuitions that black people and white people are different in a way that's medically relevant. There are many practices in medicine, whether it's in diagnostic tests or treatment guidelines, where they've created two versions of the tool, one to use in white people and one to use in black people. David says this just doesn't make sense. For starters, so many different kinds of people identify as Black American. There are mixed-race people who mark Black on the census, newly arrived African immigrants with distinct genetic ancestry from Black Americans, Afro-Latinos. When people move between Brazil and the U.S., uh, whatever their identity is, their perceived race will shift. Many people in Brazil who identify as white would get coded as Black in the U.S., how can any medical tool that relies on these shifting subjective categories be a meaningful basis for precision medicine? I, I just don't get it at all. And then there's the issue of people who are Black and identify as more than one race. You know, if you say Barack Obama is Black, as, as he self-identifies, well, you don't want to assume that all of his genes are the African alleles of these genes because his mom was a white woman from Kansas. And so in, in his case, his identity is only 50% accurate at predicting his genetics. So for instance, in the simple question, you know, should you race correct Barack Obama's EGFR? It would be adjusted at all but 20 or so hospitals in the country right now. And that'd be wrong half the time. And nephrologist Amaka Ananya has seen this issue at play in her own practice. When a mixed-race patient approached her about getting on a kidney transplant list, she asked Amaka if she could list her race as white to get listed earlier. Even though she identified herself as a Black woman, she phenotypically looked like a Black woman. She asked if she could use her white side because that would be a lower EGFR, which would be seen as worse kidney function, so she could get listed um, earlier and gain more wait time, and they did it. Amaka says her patient was well within her right to do so because currently there isn't an accommodation for mixed-race patients like her. And David says race correction in U.S. medicine is riddled with all these arbitrary inconsistencies. So for instance, while adult nephrologists do use an EGFR calculator that considers race, pediatric nephrologists don't. Uh, as if somehow you don't need to re race correct kidney function until age 18, but once you turn 18 in the U.S., you do start race correcting. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2015 and the demonstrations against racism that followed, health systems were having their own racial reckoning too, a growing body of research showed that social factors like housing, education, and income were more responsible for racial health differences than potential genetic differences between racial groups. On average, in the United States, uh, Black families have less wealth than white families by, by a large amount. And that affects everything. It affects where you live, it affects what schools you go to, it affects what food you eat, it affects what enrichment activities you have access to. So if you find two random 30-year-old men, one supposedly white, one supposedly black, you can find all sorts of differences between them. And what medicine too often has done has said those differences are because of race. It's because one is black, one is white. So in the midst of this racial reckoning that was happening in medicine, kidney care came under fire. Black people are almost four times more likely to suffer from kidney failure than white people. And once they get to that stage, black patients spend months longer waiting for a kidney than white patients do. And some advocates say these equations that take race into account could be partly to blame. Recently, there's been a national push to get rid of race correction in kidney medicine. 
and several influential health systems across the country have already dropped race from their equations. Beth Israel Medical Center in Boston, Vanderbilt University, University of Washington, Andrew Levy, the researcher who revolutionized kidney medicine with these equations, says this moment has pushed him to reflect. When he looks back at that 1999 study, there are some things he wishes his team had done differently. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice and understand that as times change, uh, people's ideas of what was a good idea changes. We really thought back then in the mid-90s when we were doing our study that we were doing a lot of good by recognizing the differences in creatinines between blacks and whites because we'd have a better estimate. What's become clear is that we put too much emphasis on that variable, which is really a social factor rather than a biological factor. But some kidney experts argue that you can't blame these equations for all the inequities in kidney care. For example, one study found that even Black patients who qualified for transplants with a race-adjusted score were still not getting them. And kidney specialist Neil Poe points out that racial disparities in chronic kidney disease existed long before the use of race-correcting tools. What is not said is that all those disparities were well-documented in the 1980s and early 1990s before the race equations were ever published or used in medical practice. So those disparities were already there, meaning that the equations could not have caused those uh, disparities. Neil says getting rid of the race factor and estimating kidney function could actually do more harm than good to Black patients. And let me tell you a little bit about those implications. One of the most important is how we dose medications. Neil says that could mean Black patients being prescribed medications they don't need or being denied treatment they do need. It could even incentivize doctors to give Black patients a diagnosis of kidney disease when, in fact, they may not have one. That could have implications for them, for example, uh, getting life insurance. Neil agrees that we need a more accurate marker other than race to assess kidney function, But as hospitals rush to eliminate race from their equations, he worries that without national guidance, the use of race and estimated kidney function will be applied inconsistently across different health systems, which could have disastrous effects on Black patients. So in August of 2020, the National Kidney Foundation and the American Society of Nephrology formed a task force to debate the pros and cons of using race in estimated GFR. In January of 2021, they issued an interim report stating that they no longer recommended the use of race in these equations. But now the question becomes how to take race out. Here's Andrew Levy again, whose research led to the development of this estimated score. So it turns out the best way to make the equations more accurate again is to measure another marker in the blood in addition to creatinine. It's called cystatin C, and Andrew says it's another biomarker like creatinine, but it doesn't depend on the use of race. Cystatin C is a uh, protein, not a metabolite. It's made by all cells. Uh, We don't understand as much what governs how much it's made, but we do find that the level of cystatin in the blood is related a little bit to age and a little bit to sex, less 
related than creatinine, but it doesn't appear to be related to race at all. Experts say it's slightly better than creatinine because it's less affected by things like if someone is vegan or how old they are, like creatinine would be. When we're talking about a vital organ like a kidney, the stakes are so high. Getting it right could be the difference between someone living and someone dying. Nephrologist Amaka Inanya hopes these conversations about the use of race in medicine will lead to better care for more people. It's a huge stepping stone. It's, it's kind of a historical moment, right, that we are challenging the literature in this way. And so I think that we should keep our attention on racial inequities, but we actually need to take steps towards it. We've described racial inequities for a very, very long time. And we're beyond the point of describing. It's time for action. That story was reported by Sojourner Ahebe. Nicole Jefferson did eventually get a new kidney transplant after listing herself at hospitals all over the country. In April of 2020, she got the call she had been waiting for. There was a match. She got on a plane to Iowa from Dallas to get her transplant. She is now an advocate for other black patients battling kidney disease. You're listening to The Pulse, a weekly health and science podcast from WHYY. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the role of race and ethnicity in medicine, when this information matters and how it's used. Most scientists agree that race is a social construct without biological significance. But when Jaya Esola and her team analyzed more than 800 med school lectures to see how race was being talked about, they found a different message. The most prevailing issue was this continued mischaracterization of race and ethnicity as a biomedical term. And race is a biomedical term when we know it to be a social construct. Jaya is a physician and the Assistant Dean of Inclusion and Diversity at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Should race at all be included in research studies? Like if I'm, if I'm studying breast cancer and I'm literally only looking at some mechanism of, of cancer, should I even ask about race? Yeah, so that's, this is such a great question and such an important one because we by no means want to say that race is not important. The recommendations that stemmed from this study really underscores that we just need to use race and ethnicity effectively and in an evidence-based way. So right now what is happening is that when we see racial differences, we're sort of assuming that it's due to genetic predisposition or ancestry, but race is a very poor proxy for ancestry. And so there are better ways of understanding ancestry. And so if you start to look at granular ethnicity or country of origin, and you find those same differences in burden of disease, and you're like, okay, well, maybe it's due to genetic predisposition. Or let's say you observe that a lot of African Americans have high blood pressure, but that's not the case in West Africa then why do I only see it here? Why don't I see it in other areas for the same 
descendants of these ancestors from West Africa? Why don't I see that same burden of hypertension in West Africa? If we don't start to ask those questions about what race is really a proxy for, the inference is that it's a proxy for genetics. And the difference is because of genetics. And what we're realizing is the difference is not due to genetics. Instead, the different health outcomes are a result of circumstances, like lack of access to health care, poverty, or racism. Several times in a day, I will see some study or a headline that says, you know, black Americans are more likely to have kidney disease or black women are more likely to die as a result of breast cancer. What should I be seeing instead? Like, how should that be framed differently? I think the headline is fine. I think the body of the paper matters and we see lots of differences. So when I see those headlines, I always like to open it up and say, okay, well, what are they attributing it to? Does the study look into the root causes? Is this about genetic differences or is this about socioeconomic factors? What kind of care somebody received? Then it's like, okay, well, they've been thoughtful in their approach to explaining what that is. But what, what usually happens is it stops at the headline. Oh, wow. There's a difference here in whatever it is, either health care or a, health, a burden of disease. And then there's one of three assumptions made. That's unfortunate circumstances. It's genetic difference. It's a lack of personal agency. And oftentimes it's none of those. It's, it's truly structural racism. But we don't, we don't get to that truth unless we ask those next order questions. Jaya says collecting data on race and ethnicity should be fine-tuned to be more specific. But getting this information from patients remains important. In some cases, it does change risk factors. For example, you know, hepatitis C prevalence amongst folks that maybe are from China and migrated here. But more importantly, it's a way to understand and evaluate the experiences people have in healthcare. The reason why it's still important to sort of know that racial and ethnic breakdown is because our experience with the healthcare system and how we're perceived and whatever race and ethnicity we're perceived in society dictates oftentimes unequal care. We are not perfect in the way we deliver high quality care to all. And there are differences in the treatment we provide. And so we have to keep ourselves honest. Jaya Asola is the executive director of Penn Medicine's Center for Health Equity Advancement in Philadelphia. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Collecting better data on race and ethnicity has long been a passion for Stella Yi. She is an assistant professor of population health at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. My day job is I'm a cardiovascular disease epidemiologist, and my research interest has actually always focused on cardiometabolic health and diet in immigrant communities. Stella focuses on Asian-American communities, and together with some of her colleagues, she's long been pushing for more granular data collection, not lumping so many different people into one big category. Because the data quality is so poor across so many different levels of the public health research sphere, you have to kind of become a 
advocate around data just as a foundational part of the job. She says just how important accurate data is came into crystal clear focus during the pandemic. So one of my colleagues, Nadia Islam, she has uh, she's been working in the Bangladeshi community for for many years. Um, she's a very trusted presence. She has a whole team of Bangladeshi community health workers that she works with. And, you know, this was like March 2020. We're having these like conversations via email, like everyone's sort of like reeling, trying to figure out what's going on. We're sending each other emails about like what we're seeing in the community, what she's hearing from her staff, what we're hearing from our community partners, et cetera. So she sort of started giving us these updates starting around like mid-March, like, oh my gosh, guys, I just heard from, you know, my community health workers that they've heard about like X number of Bangladeshi community members that have died because of COVID. By April 7th of 2020, that number had gone up to 85 people. And so then the next day, like April 8th, rolls around, the New York City Health Department releases their numbers about COVID deaths by race ethnicity. Let's take a look at it. And I looked at the table and the Asian American slash Pacific Islander number was 112. Like, like I was, I was like, what the heck is this? There's no way that that's correct, right? Because just from the Bangladeshi community alone, which is a small subset of the Asian American community in New York City, it's 85, right? So then, you know, you kind of like look further down and you see like, oh, you know, race ethnicity data is missing for like 40% of cases and deaths. Okay. So the problem with that and, you know, the problem with this sort of more globally around Asian Americans is the fact that in you know, administrative data, in health systems data, in electronic health record data, Asian Americans are often misclassified as either other or missing. She says that this misclassification is a big issue because it has consequences down the road. If you don't have data from the beginning that sort of outlines basic disparities and basic patterns of disease within a community, Like that basic data is the starting point of an entire pipeline process. Like all of a sudden there's these giant news reports about like communities of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. Like where do those numbers come from? Those numbers then dictate policy. Those numbers then dictate how funding is allocated to those communities. So if you have like, you know, garbage numbers from the beginning documenting disparities of Asian American communities, then that entire pipeline is is messed up. It's it's it doesn't work. And so what happens is if there's this kind of like underrepresentation it with the case of COVID of Asian Americans in the COVID deaths, then, you know, people on top of that like tack on the model minority stereotype and they're like, "Oh, look, the Asians are doing better during COVID like they do with all health conditions." Then therefore, the Asian communities don't need any help. Stella says, for starters, the category Asian is just too broad. It includes people from, you know, India, Nepal, China, Korea, Indonesia. And then there's like some some sub subgroup categories within that. But it's a huge category. But I just want to say that the other problem with the Asian American category is that it's inconsistently combined across the country, whether it's at city, federal, or state-level data sets, with Pacific Islander. And then sometimes Pacific Islander and Asian American are also included with Native Hawaiian, which are completely different populations. And so if I'm looking at 
different databases, like one is from a city, one is from a state, one is from somewhere else. And I see the category Asian American. We could be talking about totally different data sets, pretty much. Yes, because the other thing is that Asian Americans are, they are, they're differentially distributed geographically. So for example, like in, in Texas, like Asian Indians are the largest Asian group, right? And in New York State, I think the largest Asian group is Chinese. So if you're looking at a data set that's, you know, composed of quote unquote Asian Americans and they're heavily sampled from Texas and then another data set is Asian Americans, but they're heavily sampled from from New York, you're, the composition of the people that you're talking about is completely different. One scenario I could imagine is that policy is created for something that might make sense in New York, but it doesn't make sense anywhere else because we're talking about a totally different population. Yes. <laughs> okay. And the other, the other extension of that, to extend it back into medicine, what happens in medicine is that that Asian American category then gets extrapolated to other Asian Americans. So, for example, like findings within like Japanese men might then get extrapolated to like all Asian Americans in healthcare practice because that's the available data. Stella is part of a national group that's looking for solutions in terms of getting more accurate data when patients are asked about race and ethnicity. They can check off as many boxes as they want. And it's, you know, white, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, North African, Native American, American Indian, you know, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, white, black, Latino. Anyway, so they have all these different checkboxes. And then there are examples, um, like prompts. Like if you check white, you would you have the option of filling in Italian or Irish or Czechoslovakian or something like that. And uh, if you're if you're Asian, you know, you have these different options. So what we did was we took that example and we ran census data to see what are the most representative groups that capture like the majority of that subgroup and what are the what are those subgroups if we're looking at the data sets we have right now when it comes to asian americans are those data sets all trash or can you still work <laughs> with them like can you tease this apart somehow and figure out like who's included who's not included Yeah, so <laughs> it's a, it, it's it's funny that you say that because that's what I feel like every day. But um because <laughs> the, the more I I feel like the more I learn about this, the more I learn that there's all these, you know, potholes in the things that we know and it's very frustrating. But we can salvage and we can make use of a lot of the things that we already know. So an example of that is one of the things that we've been doing is conducting an analysis of a systematic review of all of the different algorithms that have been used to classify misclassified individuals. For example, if someone is classified as like just Asian in the electronic health record, if they have a last name of Gupta, then there's like an algorithm that you can put that into, which tells you the probability that that person is of a specific subgroup. So for example, probably Asian Indian, maybe, you know, a certain level of probability. But the whole purpose of using algorithms is to say, look, we have all of this data. Like, what can we do with it? We, you know, we shouldn't just waste it and say like, no, we got to start from the beginning. You know, we only can't, like a lot of people focus on like, how can we move forward and collect this data, which is absolutely important. But we also have to think retrospectively, like about how we can use the data that we have. And these algorithms are the way to do it. If you can then take, 
your like database to then go back and reclassify. Oh, that person actually isn't white. They're actually Mid Middle Eastern, North African. Oh, that person actually isn't, you know, black American. They're, they actually are, you know, from Haiti. That, that kind of granularity is, is what's needed going forward, and it can also be done going backwards. Stella Yee is an assistant professor of population health at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. You're listening to The Pulse, a weekly health and science podcast. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the role of race and ethnicity in medicine. Why does this information matter and how is it being used? I asked people about what boxes they check when they fill out that information at the doctor's office. And I heard from Sue Ryan. She told me she is Mexican-American and she's concerned that sometimes doctors make generalizations about her based on that. And that's something I wanted to ask researcher Jaya Asola about. How does information about a patient's race and ethnicity factor into the relationship with the doctor? I think when it comes to the provider, in that immediate encounter, it doesn't matter that much. And I'll tell you why. I think we used to always use the term cultural competency and this idea that we could somehow be competent in a culture other than our own or that memorizing a given set of stereotypes about a specific culture would somehow let us interact with that culture better. But there's intrinsic problems with that approach. So what should the provider do, though, when they inter interact with that patient? They should be cult culturally humble. So the movement away from cultural competency to cultural humility is, is this movement away from not memorizing a set of stereotypes, but learning a set of skills or tools to interact with anyone before us. And those tools are about self-reflection. They're about approaching every patient with the understanding that you have a culture, <laughs> everyone has culture, you have a background, you have a preset of biases or, you know, sort of world experiences that sort of shapes your worldview, and they do too. And then this encounter is going to be a negotiation between those two worldviews. And then how do I, and I just need to ask as a provider, a set of questions that allows me to reach that shared decision that benefits both of us. In other words, if I don't know about, you know, why a patient's saying no to something, I should ask, is there a reason why you can't take this treatment? Or I see that you haven't fulfilled your script. Is there a reason why? And then on the back end, when we start to measure our performance, You know, how do we do when we look at our panel of patients? Are we treating everyone equitably? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when they when they fill out these forms on their visit experience, you know, and if we look at it by race and ethnicity or background, do we get the same high ratings for everyone or are there differences? That's Jaya Asola. She directs Penn Medicine Center for Health Equity Advancement. The connection between doctor and patient made a huge difference for John Johnson. He is a poet and playwright in Washington, D.C. He says as a black man, he is usually skeptical when it comes to doctors and toward medical institutions as a whole. But he says a special relationship between him and his doctor saved his life. He was in his late 30s when he discovered some blood in his stool. He was having stomach issues, he wasn't eating, and his primary care doctor said he should see a specialist. And um, that's where I met Dr. Marie Borum at um, George Washington 
um, hospital. She's a black doctor, black gastroenterologist. And I'm very grateful. I feel like she's my angel on earth. Okay, so I had a colonoscopy and, um, you know, they put you to sleep for a colonoscopy. And then you wake up and they have pictures of from your esophagus all the way down to your rectum. And, and if there's any ab- abnormalities, they tell you about them or they tell you what they, their findings. And I remember waking up in the recovery room and I could tell whoever the attendee was, he, he, um, he was like, Mr. Johnson, are you coherent? And I was like, yes, I'm coherent. He was like, well, I'll come back when you're coherent. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, the way he said it, I was like, oh, he has some news that, um, you know, might not be good. And they said they found a growth, like a one-inch growth towards uh, my rectum. And, you know, they didn't know exactly what it was. And I had to go in for three biopsies. And then they um, finally decided it was a stage three colorectal cancer. Stage three was basically meaning that it had spread into some of my lymph nodes and your lymphatic system is the way cancer goes to other parts of the body, which makes it fairly serious. I had many different thoughts in my mind. One was just like, you know, becoming a vegetarian and drinking apple cider vinegar. I initially went into kind of like my homeopathic kind of ways of just survival outside of um, institutions. And Dr. Borm, she was uh, very much like, we're going to get through this. I shared that I have two young children and she shared that she had two young boys and, you know, that, that, that family connection. And, and she also shared the story of, of black men coming in and getting um, colonoscopies and finding out bad news and then going away on their own experimental ways of healing themselves and then coming back later on with things that progress and they can't, you know, they can't save them. So she wanted to make sure that I, I follow through. She called me on her vacation one day. It was like, Mr. Johnson, I just want to make sure you're being compliant. So I remember going in for MRI and um, and I was always hungry. So I always go eat at this sweet greens that was probably like a block away from um, GW um, Hospital. So I came out of sweet greens and I saw this woman in this bright orange coat. And it was Dr. Borm. And let me just say something. Dr. Marie Borm is also a fly physician. And we bumped into each other. She's like, hey, Mr. Johnson, what's going on? I was like, oh, she's like, well, what did the results say? I'm like, ma'am, I just... I just came out of this MRI like I have no idea. She grabbed my hand. We walked into the hospital, past security and everything, you know, and she pulled up my results and said that, you know, that nothing has spread to my liver and that's a good sign. And just, you know, and again, she gave me another, uh, some more encouraging words of like, you know, you need to just make sure you continue the treatment plan and, you know, you may have a positive outcome. Her words of encouragement are true. I'm on the other side of this now. I'm still being monitored. I, I had my surgery. I had an ileostomy bag where I had to dump my stool. And that was another moment of, of when you need encouragement. It's a lot, of, a lot of mental fatigue when you go through something like that. All of those things require you to have a tribe or someone who has some cultural competency to guide you through. I feel like Dr. Boren was a family member or my aunt, and I would listen to her because I trust my aunts and my family members as opposed to just trusting a generic physician. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like that doesn't, just because you're a physician doesn't mean I should trust you. When people talk about race or they talk about like, you know, why should you have a female physician and you're female? Why should you have a black physician? I think that it's important that the listeners understand that it's not it's not the fact that, oh, black people are going to just look out for black people. Like, I feel like Dr. Borum gives everyone amazing care. 
Now, her calling me on her vacation and making sure I follow through is is the is the part that I feel like is like, oh, I understand the rhythm of the black people who who have, who I've treated and many of them don't follow through. So let me call this young man with his family who I felt a little connected to and make sure he follows through. And that was the bonus time that she didn't necessarily have to have to do. So I'm very um, grateful for having a, a black physician who I feel understood me. I hope that she hears this um, one day. That's John Johnson. He is a poet and playwright. His story was produced by Jeanette Woods. You've been listening to The Pulse, a weekly health and science podcast from WHYY in Philadelphia. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Sojourner Ahebe contributed reporting to this episode. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.